traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, commissioning editor here at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be the weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. Today, we're joined once more by Sean O'Grady, The Independent's assistant editor, and he'll be reading and discussing his controversial piece, This Budget Shouldn't Have Given Millennials a Thing, Why on Earth Should I Subsidise Their Houses and Rail Cards? It was with some sense of relief that I watched Philip Haddon's 2017 budget. There was, after all, quite a lot of chatter about intergenerational fairness in the run-up to the announcements, and indeed it has been one of the most fashionable topics for political debate for some time. So the wealth and pensions of those who have spent decades working hard for them have not, after all, been raided to help relatively affluent 20-somethings make some money on the housing market. For that, the nation should be grateful. I still don't understand why taxpayers, some of whom are poor, are being asked to help subsidise people buy residential property. The taxpayer will receive no dividend from these schemes, no return on the investment, as any profits will be kept by the lucky homeowners. That is the opposite of fairness, intergenerational or otherwise. It is indeed strange that successive governments have ever felt that they have some sort of responsibility to deliver this supposed sacred British dream of home ownership, especially Tory ones. Even now, with the public finances still under strain, even when commerce and industry require investment to lift the country's appalling productivity performance, the only way to guarantee higher real wages, Hammond has added to the array of schemes and subsidies to ease younger people into home ownership, with the abolition of stamp duty for first-time buyers being the most eye-catching of them. Housing will not, in fact, raise productivity and the growth rate of the economy in the long run. Investing in plant, machinery, national infrastructure and so on, and skills, will. This is not, in other words so much about making sure everyone in the country has a roof over their heads, as much as ensuring the Tories manage to win the support of at least a portion of those under 40 years of age. What's more, these tax breaks will only make matters worse in the housing market by increasing effective demand and pushing prices even higher. Now I, as a non-millennial, am also being asked to subsidise the rail travel of 25 to 30-year-olds who may well be richer than I am, as the rail card uh, they are to get is not means-tested. This cohort has long since left university, and their rail cards will be used to get them to their stag-do's and honeymoons uh, as they move towards matrimony. Obviously, I wish them every happiness, but see no need as to why I should help them boost their personal booze budgets. 
Last, it should be pretty clear that intergenerational fairness is a very silly concept indeed in any event. Is it fair that my parents' and grandparents' generations had to live through and fight in a couple of world wars? Is it fair that, say, gay people of my age group had to live with massive prejudice, blackmail and violence in stark contrast to the much more humane attitudes of today? Is it fair that so many of us couldn't get any work during the Thatcher era when real unemployment was approaching four million? The reason why houses and flats were cheaper back then is because there was less money around. Simple as that. I don't want or need or ask for compensation for living in the run-down, jobless, dull, uptight, repressed Britain that I grew up in. Even the food's better nowadays. The notion that there was some easy age of affluence in the recent past is plain wrong. Making your way in the British economy of the 1970s was tough, and the 1980s were even worse. Even if there was, and I admit that property values have increased substantially, as they always have, there is no law of nature that states that every generation has to be better off than the last one, and for most of human existence, they were not. I wonder, too, if the millennials of today, who are being lifted onto the housing ladder, will feel quite as hard done by when they cash in their tax-free profits and have to listen to the complaints about the price of a flat from their own children or grandchildren. Will they want to hand over some of their capital gains in taxation to the next generation? Or will intergenerational fairness be a concept that strangely goes out of fashion in about 2050? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Sure. Kirsty. So your piece got quite the response yesterday on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Some people were very angry, yeah. mostly young people, very angry young millennials. Good. But I actually think people are a little bit harsh on you, right? Right. Because I broadly agree with some of your points, and I'm within the millennial age bracket. And I agree with the fact that Hammond's stamp duty scrapping mm was ridiculous because it actually only benefits young people who can scrape together not even scrape together young people who are, are often gifted yeah. their deposits by their parents so it actually it helps wealthy young people but it doesn't help young people at the lower end of the bracket mm -hmm. so i agree with you there i think we're subsidizing rich people essentially we're subsidizing future tory voters 
mm-hmm. is my feeling. Yes. So I agree with you there. Yeah. But I disagree <clears throat> with your overall sentiment, which is that intergenerational equality, which does exist, shouldn't in some way be addressed. The Resolution Foundation have done a lot of work on this. Uh, wages are going down for young people. The demographic 22 to 30 year olds are the only ones who haven't seen an increase in their wages since 2007. Inflation is going up, which obviously is affecting everyone. You have a situation whereby you can't get on the property ladder, especially if you're poor because house prices have increased so much. So it does, so therefore, you know, asset wealth has gone down for young people. So there is an issue of intergenerational inequality, but you totally dispute this, don't you? Yeah, I think it's a very silly idea indeed. It doesn't stand up to a moment's thought. It, even if the, the clever people at the Resolution Foundation um, believe it does. Because, as I said in the article, if you think about past generation, if you think about the generation before mine, so to speak, or beyond that, in those days, it was the fodder for Northern Comics jokes that when people got married, they certainly couldn't afford usually to buy a, a house, uh, and they had to go and live with their parents or in-laws uh, for a few years in a strange existence uh, while they saved up a few quid in order to put the money down from the building society and all the rest of it. And as I said, too, there was a the, the generation that... Uh, came just before mine, uh, lived through two world wars and the Depression. And they were worse off than, than my generation. And I think in in some ways it wasn't fair. But, I mean, it was just the way that the world happened to be in the 1930s compared to the world of the 1960s. You can't turn decades of economic progress or civil disturbance or whatever it's going on you can't equalize those things and in the long in the long history of humanity um, the idea that every generation has some sort of human right or expectation even of being more prosperous uh, and wealthy than the previous one was alien uh, you know, we've got slow growth in the economy right now, but I mean, for, for most of the period of, before the Industrial Revolution, it was nowhere near as fast as it is today. Much, much slower, much more slower. It's te- technological change, social change, and so on. And generations didn't really expect to be richer than the previous ones. It was an alien concept. So it's a very modern uh, day thing. And it's got not. The idea of progress. Oh, what a terribly modern idea. <laughs> No, but I mean, I think that economies come and come and go, so to speak. I think well, so, that the, so let me pick up the on British that point, the British economy isn't growing very fast at the moment, mm-hmm. and everyone's very pessimistic about it. But it doesn't mean it can't grow faster in the future. Um, and if you look at countries like India and China, for example, that hardly grew at all in the fifty years after the Second World War, then they rejoined the world economy. Now they're growing at three, four, five, six times the rate that the British economy is growing at. There's nothing inevitable about economic growth rates anyway. Okay, so let me pick up on your point of cyclical uh, economies, the idea of, uh, you know, boom and bust, ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So at a moment, we're very obviously at a down point. Okay, so we agree on that. No, I wouldn't say necessarily a, Productivity's a down Productivity is down and growth is down. So yeah, there are, some, there are some bad things going on, but, I mean, it's not as bad as it was in the 1930s, for example. Yeah, most but things aren't as bad as they were in the 1930s. That, right. That's a bit of an outlier example. Yeah, but do but I do... Return to my, Sean, let me finish my point. Go on, yeah. So, we're at a point where the economy isn't in a great place. Yeah. Okay. 
And would you agree that it is young people who are shouldering that burden, not your generation? So I'm shouldering that burden, not you. Would you agree with that? No, uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, um, it's not determined like in a rule change for age. It's not determined by age. There are rich young people in this country and there are certainly poor older people and old people in this country as well. And if you want to talk about fairness, which is a fairly mushy concept at the best of times, but fairness between rich and poor is, is more easily understood than fairness between, uh, between old and young. Having said that, of course, the old tend to have acquired more assets and pension exactly. parts and property because they're old, because they've been around for many years, and if they've been prudent, they've worked hard, they've saved hard, maybe they've been fortunate in life. You can't legislate against that. But you can't... And, the, the, okay. the, and they also pay an awful lot in taxation, and they have to face nowadays... Uh, through a lot of advances in health and medicine, but you have to face a long period of older age when your health isn't going to be so good, when you may not be able to get the drugs that you need on the NHS, when social care is deprived, and when your pension part um, actually won't go that far. And who's paying Much for the pension part and who's paying for the social care well, and the, the health care? Younger workers. Yes. Exactly. But just as So we're subsidising... And and I'm okay with this. I'm mm. totally there fine with giving away part of my wage to the state to yeah. support other people. Yeah. Because I'm a socialist, maybe first and foremost. But I'm totally fine with that. So why aren't you fine for a little bit of a little bit more of your wage to help subsidise our generation? A little bit of give and take. What's wrong with that? Well, because I didn't have it myself and the the thing is that my generation paid for the pensions of the uh, the previous generation who went through two world wars and a depression for example i mean well what's to say you can't subsidize rail cards for a generation which lived through the financial well, crash and whose who's lack of jobs and lack of career prospects um but and also lack of housing because the housing market has been overheated by a, fi a financial yeah, market which uses it as a tool. My generation is bearing the brunt of that financial crash. So why shouldn't uh, we be subsidised just as you were quite happy to subsidise the generation well, a few, from the depression? Yeah, there's a few reasons why. I mean, first of all, why why should I buy somebody a rail card who's, who's 29 years old and can afford it and has got a good salary or something? I might have a bigger salary than me for all I know. I don't understand why I have to do that. Um, it's a silly, uh, nonsensical idea. That's I mean, a, I agree. A straightforward it's a that's a stupid policy. Political bribe. The thing about the housing market is much overdone, this idea that it's broken and all the rest of it. Housing is very expensive at the moment, and in real terms it's probably more expensive maybe than even it's ever been. It's perfectly possible. But it was not cheap in the past. It was not easy for people who came from poorer backgrounds to get onto the housing ladder without the bank of mum and dad, as they call it nowadays, uh, without financial assistance from your family or that sort of thing, or inheriting it. Um, it was never easy. And I lived through times in the early 90s, for example, when there was negative equity, when, when interest rates were 15 17% or something. Yeah, there was unemployment was growing, house prices were falling, and your mortgage wasn't falling with it. And you found a situation where your mortgage debt was was bigger than the value of the house. And if you're pushed into losing your home, you'd be pushed into bankruptcy as well. So 
this idea that it was all easy going and it was all you know that this sort of generation was was showered with riches without any difficulty is nonsense in the in the 70s and in the thatcher uh, recession uh, the great sort of upheavals in the 1980s as i said it's very it was very very hard to find a job inflation was very high there were lots of inequalities at that time uh, but nobody blamed the old folk i mean nobody said well you're all right because you're on the state pension or something and the state pension as it happens was delinked from earnings for about 30 years from the early 1980s so all these things were going on uh, for older people, and they still are with areas such as social care. And if you say, well, why shouldn't you take some work? Well, A, you worked for it. B, you saved hard for it. C, you're supposed to do that. You've been encouraged to do that all your life. And you're encouraged to be as financially independent as you possibly can be in the circumstances. And my generation helped pay, as I say, for the pensions and the uh, health care and the social care of older people in the past, and we'd do so in the future, we'd expect that social contract to be honoured. But then to pick up on the idea of savings, your argument is predicated on the idea that young people have a an atom of financial independence, whereas actually, if you get your monthly pay packet and a half of it goes on your rent, because one in seven people have mm. half of their pay packet on their rent, a third average, uh, you then pay a lot more money for food right now because of inflation, and, you, and yeah. your energy bills, you know, when you're renting, then you're left with a situation where you don't actually have that much left to save. Well, especially if your wages have already been squeezed because yeah. of the post-recession but slump. Look, the thing is that there are lots and lots of things which are cheaper and better than they ever were before, like cars, for example. Now, I when I was use an example of cars, Sean, because it's not, it's not like an essential item that most people can even dream well, of. Well, for a lot of people... I mean, if we're going to have this conversation, at least use, like, a weekly shopping bill because people have to eat. But no, cars no, no, no. are such lot a... Of, lot of... Like, it's such a luxury. Like, you even bringing up that example shows that but I don't think you truly realise the, point, the right. purchase and power that young people but have, the point which is, is zero. That f- right, but the point is that a, a, car, a second-hand car, a cheap car, if you will, isn't essential for many people. And I very much doubt whether you'll live your entire life without getting behind the wheel. We shall see. <laughs> but um, the point there is that when you say it's a luxury and it's difficult to afford and everything, well, my point is that 30, 40 years ago, they were much more expensive than they are today. They were much less reliable. They were more costly to run. And when you say a weekly family bill and all the rest of it, for a lot of people in the country, car insurance, fuel uh, the general costs of running a motor car are uh, certainly there, important elements of it. And those things and uh, the internet, computers, health, drugs, all the rest of it, absolutely transformed from my generation. It's not fair, if you like, I'd never argue it, but it's not fair that uh, a lot of the, the drugs are, that are available today were not available 30 or 40 years ago when they could have saved people's lives and or, or improved their quality of life. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the... What we're doing now, what Hammond did in the budget especially, is pumping more and more government money, taxpayers' money, not always rich people, taxpayers, into the housing market. And all we're doing is pumping it up, pumping it up, pumping it up. What we should really do, what we're too frightened to, is treat the housing market properly on a fiscal basis. Mm -hmm. In other words, at the moment, about the only thing in the country that you can speculate in, buy and sell, of any size, tax-free is residential property, your principal residential property, your own home. And people make gigantic tax-free 
uh, capital gains out of it. They pocket the profits. They buy a bigger house. Next, so that's why people want to get on the housing ladder. It's, it's because they think it's the only way to make any money. Yeah, it's a financial tool. Well, I fair enough. But let's just be clear about that. And the taxpayers putting a lot of money in. I would favour having uh, a more rational approach to taxation of residential property, which would be capital gains tax on the on the on the uh, gains, fiscal neutrality, as they call it, between asset classes, in technical lingo. Um, the other thing, though, is to allow the market to work. If you're in a situation where, you know, when you say half the rents, half the salaries pay, take, go, go out in rent or mortgage payments and so forth, this is for people who choose to live and work in London very largely. It's very much a London phenomenon. There are many places in the country where you can buy a house for £100,000. You can't do it in uh, parts of London for sure. In other words, we ought to let the market do that. We ought to let the market work in such a way that people and jobs and companies relocate to places that are cheaper. Instead of doing what we're doing now, which is a sort of, you know, a, a, what they call in the market a put option, a government put option, which is to underpin and guarantee and, in fact, inflate the housing market by throwing yet more subsidies at it. You know, all these schemes, the help to buy thing, the, the stamp duties. The, the thing that has happened in the past and which we, we seem to be unwilling to uh, imagine happening now is a housing price correction or even a crash. That would transform things, uh, depending on how big it is, but that could easily transform things just as it did uh, in the 90s, for example, in the, when it last happened, or the, or the last during the financial crisis a bit. And if you allow those market forces to operate, then you will find that, you know, the housing crisis will ease as the market um, gets to work on it. But that hasn't happened. And the other thing is, of course, the whole thing about planning permissions and... Uh, you know, the encouragement for urban building or greenfield building. What we may end up with shortly is the government also subsidising the creation of property accommodation, basically flats in inner cities, that people don't want to live in, which is an absolute waste of money. So once you get the state involved in that sort of way, trying to direct where people live and they don't want to live in a place without a garden and all this stuff, well, that's another disaster and you get no productive return. And the last thing about housing, the obsession with housing, is the way the country should be going is to put more money, more funds, not into consumption, not into rail cars and, and house uh, building, actually, but into plant machinery, research and development, computers, new techniques in industry and in commerce and every business, new computers. That would raise the productive potential of the economy. In the longer run, it would mean that companies are able to be more profitable, wages for the workers would go up, living standards would go up. That's the only way you do it. Whether you're inside the European or not, Union or not, by the way, that's the way to get the economy more prosperous for every age group. Instead, what we've got is we're fighting like rats in a sack, young and old, rich and poor, north and south, over a, a sort of limited pot, instead of thinking about how we can make that pot of money grow. Uh, and the sacrifices, frankly, that would have to be made uh, on all parts in order to make the British economy more uh, productive in the future. But instead, we're just scrapping. And here we are, scrapping on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and thank you for joining us today, Sean. Pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does make a difference, so please leave us a comment. Helen Hodnot produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major, and next week we're going to be joined by, again, another Double Take favourite, John Rentoul, and Richard Power Said, who will be discussing Blair's legacy. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.